Scripture reading this morning will be from the book of Psalms, chapter 19, verses 7 through 11. It'll be Psalms 19, verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. me the Bible. Sometimes you make this, make a, a statement that is questionable, right? And you might say, this is arguably the best fill in the blank. Well, when it comes to saying a statement about the Bible, we don't have to say it's arguably the most influential book in the course of history. We can say with certainty it is the most influential book over the course of history. It has changed the lives of millions. It has caused many to forget their own desires and follow after the desires of God, the will of God. It is certainly the most influential book, but unfortunately, when it is not interpreted and applied correctly, those interpretations and misapplications lead to death. They lead to terrible things. They lead to problems in this world. And so while we might say with certainty that the book, the Bible, is the most influential book in all of history, when it is not properly learned from and properly observed and properly divided, we reap consequences that are eternally problematic. And when we think about the importance of properly looking at the scriptures and saying the statement or asking the statement to give me the Bible, we need to recognize the gravity of said statement. We need to recognize the importance of what we mean by that. Consider 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 15 in which the Apostle Paul wrote to a young Christian Timothy in which he said, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. A teacher, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It's that last phrase in this verse that I want us to focus upon this morning, to rightly divide the word of truth. And it's in light of what we just said a few moments ago, that when the word of God is not properly read and interpreted and implied, that there are vast consequences, eternal consequences, that I want us this morning to go all the way back to what we might consider one of the most fundamental lessons and ideas that we need to realize. And that is that the Word of God is divided into two parts. When we say 
the word of God needs to be rightly divided, as Paul said. It could mean a variety of different things, that we need to make sure that we are dividing false doctrine from true doctrine. That we're dividing the things that are the fruit of the Spirit versus the works of the flesh. We go through a, a litany of lists of things that we need to rightly divide, but it first must begin with, are we rightly dividing the word in its two different testaments? First consider this morning that the Bible has two definite divisions. It has two definite divisions. Most people in the world at least are somewhat familiar with, that, with the terms Old Testament and New Testament. They recognize that there are two parts of the Bible, but what they might not recognize here in a moment is that the distinction is very important. It's highly consequential. The idea of the Old Testament and the New Testament is, a, is an idea where people might recognize that they are two parts, but they may not recognize what the words actually mean. When we think of the word testament, it simply means a covenant or an agreement. And so when we say the Old Testament and the New Testament, we're not talking specifically about and only about its time and how old it is in terms of its age, or how young it is in terms of its age with regard to the New Testament. But specifically, we're talking about that which was before and in the past and that which is now. And so in regards to the idea of a covenant, we're talking about the covenant that exists between God and mankind. That is, the Old Testament was a covenant that existed between God and mankind, but as we'll say here in a moment, does not exist any longer between God and mankind. Whereas we have with the New Testament a new covenant, a new agreement, a new relationship between God and mankind that exists. The Old Testament had four parts, right? The five books of law, that is Genesis through Deuteronomy. The twelve books of history, that is Joshua, the books of Joshua through Esther. The five books of poetry, that is the book of Job through Song of Solomon. We have the 17 books of prophecy, Isaiah through Malachi, in which each of these particular units combine to make the 39 books of the Old Testament, that is the Old Covenant. And so as you look at your Bible, you'll see in the table of contents that there is categorized for you the Old Testament at the table of contents in which there are 39 books underneath it. But there is now the New Testament. The New Testament consists of four parts in which we have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in which we have the accounts of Jesus Christ on earth in which he came to bring his kingdom. We have the book of history, the book of Acts, in which we have the Acts of what is sometimes known the Acts of the Apostles written by Luke, in which we have for us the account of the church and its establishment as it was brought uh, to uh, Jerusalem and throughout the rest of the world. And then we have various epistles and letters, the books of Romans through Jude, in which various apostles and others wrote to various churches in areas throughout the parts of Asia Minor in which they were trying to make sure that the young Christians in the first century knew what it was that Christians ought to be doing and how they were, how they had become Christians, what, what it was that the gospel was that they learned and how that they were to practice various parts of, of worship and how they were to interact with other people. And so we have the epistles and letters. And then finally, the fourth section of the New Testament, the fourth part is the book of prophecy, the book of Revelation that looks forward to the end times as it were and is a promise to the church that when we realize that as Christians, we might be oppressed, as were the first century Christians by the Romans. 
that you and I, maybe though we face persecution, we have the promise and the hope of looking to the eternal heaven that we can enjoy with Jesus Christ and God and the Holy Spirit. And so we need to realize that the Bible has two distinct divisions. But as we've already alluded to, we need to recognize that these two divisions have very distinct differences. They have very distinct differences. It's not just to say that there's, well, there's just one and here's another and there's, they're not really that different, but rather they are. They're very distinct in what they teach and how they are applied and what we ought to recognize from them. Consider this, that the two divisions have distinct differences in that they have different names. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 6, the Bible says, "...who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the latter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life." And then in verse number 14 it says, "...but their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ." Very distinctly, Paul, as he wrote to the church at Corinth, made it recognized, made it known that there was the Old Testament or the Old Covenant and the New Testament. And we ought to recognize that as well, the different names. There were also different arrival times. We made reference to this earlier. We said it's not only in regards to when they came, but rather that it's also into their quality. But it is important to notice that the Old Testament did come before the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 9 tells us that he said, Behold, I come, I've come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish, establish the second. One came first, the other came second. The new came second. They have a different quality. Not as though God was unable to make something in the Old Covenant that was not good or that was not right for the time. But until Jesus came, until Jesus established his covenant, the new covenant, the first was, as Hebrews chapter 8 verse number 7 calls it, one that was faultless. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. But James chapter 1 verse 25 calls the new law, the perfect law of liberty. When Jesus came and established his covenant, we were no longer in need of the blood of bulls and goats, as we'll get to here in just a moment. But rather, we had the perfect sacrifice of Christ. There's also a distinct difference in the sense that there were different recipients of the old and new covenant. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 11 through 22, one was given to just a few, whereas the other was given to many. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 11, beginning in verse number 11. I want us to notice what Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. He says, therefore, verse number 11 of Ephesians chapter 2, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from, notice, the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from, notice, the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul is writing to a group of Gentile Christians who, before becoming Christians, did not share in the covenant that the Jews, the Hebrews, had the opportunity to share in. And he says, at one time, church at Ephesus, those of you that are Gentile Christians, you were far off. You were aliens and strangers from the covenant of promise. The covenant of promise that he's speaking of there is the old covenant, the one that was made with the Jews, the one that was made with the people of Israel. But he says now in Christ, 
The recipients of the new covenant are all of mankind, at least those that submit to it. And so you and I today, whether we are Jew or whether we are Greek, we have the opportunity to be a recipient of this distinct new covenant. But it also has a different outlook. A different outlook. Consider, consider Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 1. The Hebrews writer says, For the law, that is the old covenant, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach it perfect. The Hebrews writer is making this distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, which was this, that the Old Covenant only looked forward to the New It was only that which showed a shadow or a foreshadowing, if you will, of the things to come. But the new covenant is that very thing. It was the very image of the things that they were looking to. And so it had a different and has a different outlook. There's also to be considered the different sacrifices as we alluded to a moment ago. In Hebrews chapter 9 verses 12 through 22, we see that the new covenant provides, as we've already mentioned, a better sacrifice in Jesus Christ. Notice chapter 9, verse number 12 of Hebrews. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. The two divisions have distinct differences, and this being perhaps one of the most important, that the sacrifice of Christ is distinct and different, and as the Hebrews writer tries to uh, commit to us through his writings over and over and over again, that the new covenant is better because of Jesus, has a different atonement. If we were to continue on in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, particularly in verse number 4, the Hebrews writer says, It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. And in verse 3 he says, In those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. But in the new covenant, in the new law, forgiveness under the new takes away sin. It's gone. It's it's taken away. It's it's relinquished. And then finally, as we consider the two distinct differences between the two different covenants, consider the different priesthood. Not only is Jesus the perfect sacrifice and the perfect offering, which is better than the the, the blood of bulls and goats, but also that we have a better priesthood. In Hebrews chapter number 7, verses 1 through 28, particularly verse number 24, Notice that it's said of Jesus that he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. The priests before did not live forever. They were not perfect as Christ was perfect. They did not have the opportunity as Christ does to continually stand before, between us and God as a, as a mediator and as a high priest. And you and I, as we have the opportunity to live under the covenant today, need to recognize that there are some distinct differences between the old and the new covenants. So the question then would remain, if there are distinct differences, does that mean something for how I approach them? And the answer would be certainly yes, because the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, was decisively dissolved. It was decisively dissolved. We'd ask, well, how do we know that? How do we know that? The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 6 and verse number 14 that it was, it's expressly stated It's dissolved. It's gone away. We're no longer under it. Paul says in Romans 6, verse 14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, that is speaking of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, but you are now under grace, 
Speaking of the new covenant, there's been a change. You're no longer under it. It's decisive. We're, it's been dissolved as though it has any hold over us, as though we are to submit to it. But also, very expressly in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6-18, through 18, it tells us that it has been done away with. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 9 tells us that it's been taken away. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15-16 through 16 tells us that it has been abolished. If there was ever any doubt, any other, ever any question about whether or not the Old Testament was still in effect into, into this very day, we ought to look to these verses and be reminded it's been done away with, it's been taken away, it's been abolished. Not only that, we need to recognize that all along, the Old Testament was never intended to last forever. It was temporary. It was something that was only given for a short time. Consider Galatians chapter 3, verses 16. I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 3, verse number 24 and 25, which Paul says, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. In other words, it was showing us the way to Christ, much like a tutor would show a student how something is to be calculated in math, for example, that we might be justified by faith. But then verse 25 he says, But after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. When Christ came, the tutor was no longer needed. doesn't mean that it doesn't serve a purpose still today, as we'll talk about in just a moment. But we're no longer under it. It was temporary. And as the change in priesthood took place, we can know that, as the Hebrews writer says in chapter 7, verses 12 and 14, that we are no longer under the Old Testament. It has been decisively dissolved. So the question then is, we've already began to mention, how did this happen or when did this happen? The answer is that the old was only in effect until Christ came. Galatians chapter 3, verse number 16, Paul says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And then in verse number 19, he says, What purpose then does the law serve? I'm talking about the Old Testament. What purpose does it have now? It was added because of, he says, transgressions. It was for the transgressions at the time, until... The seed, which we just established in verse number 16, was Christ, came until the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hands of a mediator. So it came into effect when Christ came. More specifically, it came into effect when the old law that was the Old Testament was nailed to the cross. Colossians chapter 2, verse number 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us which was contrary to us. He has taken it out of the way, and notice what he says, has nailed it to the cross. When did it happen? It happened when Christ came. Where did it happen specifically? At the cross. When Christ was nailed to the cross, so too was the old law nailed to the cross. And when Christ was slain, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 15 through 16, that the old law was slain. So then the question would remain, what does this mean? If the old law has been decisively dissolved, and we know that for sure, and we know that it took place at the cross, what does this mean for the old law today? It means we ought not to ask it, what do I need to do or what must I do to be saved? We ought not to turn to the pages of the Old Testament to ask the question, how do I become a Christian? We ought not to turn to the pages of the Old Testament to ask, how can I have my sins washed away? Rather, that we ought to turn to the new to the new covenant as Jesus has established it and turn to it to ask that question. We also ought not to look to it for religious authority. 
to say, well, the Old Testament allows for fill-in-the-blank, and therefore I today should have the authority to fill-in-the-blank. But rather that we ought to look to the New Testament and the New Testament alone as religious authority for our lives. And as such, we ought not to follow it as a pattern for the Christian life. That is, we can certainly learn much from those of the Old Testament, and the, the stories and accounts we read from it, as we'll talk about in a moment, but it is not the pattern for the Christian life. So the, what good is it today then? If it was decisively dissolved and it happened at the cross and we ought not to look to it for salvation and how do we, how we uh, find salvation and what we ought to do to, to worship and, and authority for religion and things of that nature, what good is it for today? Four parts that it could be good for, we could say. It has an apologetic purpose. An apologetic purpose. The word apologetic doesn't mean to say sorry in this sense, in this instance, but rather to give a defense, to find evidence for. When we think about apologetics, it is that which we look to to help us to reason through the existence of God and the authority of scriptures and the historicity of Jesus. And when we think about it having an apologetic purpose, we think about the Old Testament and its prophecies of Christ coming. We can look to it to realize that the, the Christ that we serve today is the Christ that was promised through the Old Covenant over and over and over again. Not only that, can we look to it to help to firm up and establish and verify things that the New Testament try to, to command in our lives. That is, it is truly the Word of God. Because it's connected to the Old Testament, we can see various things taking place in the in, in, over the course of history that are verified by the Old Testament, we can know that this is truly the Word of God. It has an apologetic purpose, but it also has an illustrative purpose. We said before that we ought not to look to the Old Testament as a pattern for our Christian life, but we can certainly look to the Old Testament characters as illustrative means. That is, we can look to them to see how we can study their character, what morality looks like, what evil looks like. And we can look to those individuals to help to illustrate principles and how individuals are to act and how they are not to act. It has a theological purpose. In other words, the Old Testament introduces me to God. That is, the first 39 books of the Bible introduce me to who God is, what God is like. We see time and time again through the Old Testament that God says what he means and he means what he says. We know the character that God possesses and his righteousness and goodness. We see these things over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament, and it teaches us about God. It also has an interpersonal purpose. In other words, it helps us to know how we ought to relate not only to God, but also to our fellow man. How did Abraham and God interact? How did God interact with Moses and Noah and all these different characters? How does he interact with me today, not in the exact same way, but he expects me to follow his will much like, he follow, much like those characters followed the will of God in the Old Testament. And so the New Testament demands devotion. We need to remember that we are living in a new age, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 17, that no longer are we under that old covenant, as we said before. We are to listen to the new prophet in Matthew chapter number 17 and verse number 5, at the transfiguration, Jesus is spoken of by God and says, no longer listen to the prophets Moses and Abraham, but rather hear ye him. Speaking of Jesus, God says, from, uh, from, from heaven. 
We also need to recognize that we are under a new law. We're no longer under the old. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 20. To the Jews, Paul says, I became a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. But to those who are without law, as without Christ, he says, though, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ. Realize that just because we're not under the old law doesn't mean we have no law today, but rather that we are to fulfill the law of Christ. Galatians chapter 6, verse number 2. And finally, we are given a new title. That is, we are entrusted with the responsibility of being ministers of the new covenant, the new law. And so it demands our devotion. It's not something that we ought to look at as just something that's, oh, it's important to realize the distinction, but it's not really that big of a deal in my life. No, it is. It demands our devotion. As we close, the Old Testament is past. It's no longer our authority. And realizing that difference, rightly dividing the word, pays dividends in our life. It pays dividends in our life as you think about what we've read this week in our Reading in Sync program. In John chapter 6, verse 68, Peter says, Lord, to whom should we go? For you have the words of life. It helps us in finding eternal life. It pays dividends beyond any other interest-bearing account that we could ever hope to put into, but rather it pays dividends for our eternal life in regards to our soul in heaven. It helps for doctrine. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, as we read this week, Paul says, Though we or an angel from heaven reveal another gospel unto you, let him be accursed. In other words, it's important what we believe. It's important what we teach in regards to the gospel. And in order to rightly divide, in, in regard to rightly dividing the word of truth, it's imperative that we do it properly and not allow false doctrine to creep in. It helps us also fight temptation. Remember, as we read from Matthew chapter number 4, each time that Jesus rebuked Satan as Satan tempted him, what did he return with? It is written. It is written. It is written. God, that is Christ, knew the words of God, and he rebuked Satan, and he fought temptation with the words of God. And rightly dividing the word of truth pays dividends for us today. It helps us fight temptation. And also it helps to sow the seed. Recall from Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20, the parable of the sower, in which the word of God is the seed. And unless we rightly divide the word of truth, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 15, we can't effectively and properly sow the seed to others. It's imperative that we recognize and rightly divide the word of truth. So the question for you this morning is this. As we close, I draw your attention back to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 15. And ask the question, are you being diligent to present yourself approved to God in your life? Not approved to man, but approved to God. Are you a worker who does not need to be ashamed because you have rightly divided the word of truth? It starts here this morning. It starts with rightly dividing between the Old and New Testament. And that leads to rightly dividing between various doctrines and the such as you go on from there. This morning, make sure that you are properly giving attention and devotion to the New Testament as you follow after and what it teaches in regards to salvation. If you're not a New Testament Christian this morning, we'd point you to the New Testament. We'd point you to the words of the New Testament to find what it is that you need to do to be saved. If you are a Christian, we'd remind you to look back there for what it is that you need to do to be a faithful Christian. If there's anything that we can do for you this morning, we ask that you come. Together we stand and as we sing.